Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15. Last week we began what will be a four-week look at Matthew 15, 1 through 20. It's an encounter between some Pharisees and scribes who've came down from Jerusalem in order to investigate the orthodoxy, or their version of orthodoxy, according to their opinion, their standard, of Jesus, who in in their mind is this rogue popular teacher and healer who some are saying is the Messiah. And in 1214 we learned of some local Pharisees who had taken offense at Jesus and who had conspired against Jesus as to how they might destroy him. It seems as if they've gone up the ladder to bring the big wigs down from Jerusalem. And they... And the report they delivered to the Jerusalem Pharisees and scribes would have been very troubling to them indeed. These local Pharisees and scribes had undoubtedly reported to their Jerusalem counterparts all the attention that Jesus was receiving from the crowds. And all the troubling things that Jesus had been saying and doing. How that Jesus had said that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was insufficient to get you into the kingdom, according to Matthew 5.20. How Jesus quoted and refuted the tradition of the elders multiple times. The audacity, right? Matthew 5.21-48. They've heard that Jesus touched the untouchables in Matthew 8. That he fellowshiped with tax collectors and sinners in Matthew 9, 9-13. That he didn't observe their bi-weekly fasts in 9, 14 through 17. So their mission's quite obvious. They've come down from Jerusalem to find fault with Jesus. This, en- this encounter has the feel of a formal inquisition. They hope to find another example of Jesus' rejection of the, tri- of the tradition of the elders. And sure enough, as we saw last week, they did. In 15.2, they ask, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So they're attempting to verify, straight from the horse's mouth, this question. Do you reject the universally accepted tradition of the elders? That tradition that's been handed down to us from our fathers. Are you out of step with what everybody believes? Well, Jesus wasn't intimidated by their position or by their credentials or their ecclesiastical clout. All of that just caused Jesus to treat them with greater severity. In 15, 3-6, He answered and said, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Notice the repetition. It's not just why do you, but why do you yourself? Jesus is going out of His way to make sure they feel the full weight of His authority. He's reclaiming the authority back. That they're trying to assert their authority over him. He's saying, no, I'm King Jesus. He's not the one in trouble with them under their authority. They're the ones that are in trouble with him under his. In verse 4 he says, For God said, honor your father and mother. And whoever speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Jesus accused them of being capital offenders before God. They insinuated that Jesus wasn't taking a minor purity rite as seriously as some of the more austere religious traditions said that a truly pious rabbi should. And Jesus tells them that they're worthy of the death penalty (laughs) because of how their their tradition violates the fifth commandment. 
And then he quotes their damnable tradition back to them in 5 through 6. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. The law required people to keep up their parents in their twilight years if there was a need. But according to the local tradition of the elders, if you thought you had a bad parent and you didn't want to help them in their old age, you could just declare Corbin. That meant given to God. And then you were not only not required to help them, but verse 6, it says, He is not to help his father or mother. And Jesus says, And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. The vow didn't simply allow the withholding of help from father or mother, but it actually required that no help be given at all. Regardless of their need, regardless if the relationship got better, once you had made that vow, they're like, well, that vow is more important than your responsibility to take care of your parents. And the cool part for the vow maker was that they didn't have to give anything while they were alive. They got to keep all their stuff. They got to keep all their money, use it however they wanted. And when they died, everything would, would not go to their children, but go to the temple. So it defrauded in every direction. It defrauded mom and dad. It defrauded the kids. And it benefited those scribes and Pharisees because the money went to the temple treasury. You can see why they kind of liked that tradition. But the coffers were full, so they were happy. So Jesus would go not... uh, I'm sorry. So Jesus didn't beat around the bush. He absolutely pulled no punches and he isn't done. He doesn't caveat and he doesn't nuance. Have you noticed today that when you say direct things these days, or anybody says direct things, if they even do have the courage to say them, they caveat and nuance to death. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't caveat and he didn't nuance and he doesn't soften the blow. As a matter of fact, he just punches even harder. And that's what we're going to look at today in Matthew 15, 7 through 9. Tried to recap quickly, but that gets us all caught up. So Matthew 15, 7 through 9. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. In this text we see three more things about the damnable religion of the Pharisees and scribes. We're going to look at this morning that it fulfills prophecy, that it was a fake religion, and that it's built on the fear of man, not the fear of God. Beginning here with it fulfills prophecies. All of the Gospels are rooted in the Old Testament tradition, but none of them more than Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's entire purpose is to prove that Jesus of Nazareth is the Old Testament promised Messiah. There's 68 Old Testament references in the Gospel of Matthew. So 28 chapters, 68 times it quotes the Old Testament. You unhitch from the Old Testament, you can't understand the New Testament. The technical expression, it is written in the perfect tense, appears nine times. Matthew cites Old Testament prophecy in conjunction with the term fulfilled together with phrases that it might be fulfilled, that it was fulfilled, that it is fulfilled, uh, that it should be fulfilled another 12 times. And this text is a unique construction, but it's saying exactly the same thing. Verse 7, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. When y'all think of prophecy, what do you think of? You think of fortune telling. Uh, Dion knew where we were going. 
Now, you think of fortune telling. You think of telling the future. But prophecy includes telling the future, but it's not limited to that. It, it can also mean to speak inspired utterances, to anything that's coming straight from God. You're speaking the very words of God. The word fulfilled doesn't require that the prophet whose words are being fulfilled was even intending to speak about future events at all. He doesn't have to be saying, hey, I, prophet, I predict. He's not Nostradamus. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what's going on with the prophets or when Jesus says that it might be fulfilled. It's, sometimes it's, that is the case, that they are looking forward and saying this is going to happen in the future, but not necessarily. It, sometimes there's, it's simply an Old Testament type that has a greater fulfillment in the life of Christ or an event related to his earthly life, and that's certainly the case here. Both Jesus and the disciples who he taught saw a continuity between God's working in the Old Testament and the events, the time period and ministry of Jesus. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. If you're reading the Old Testament, and when Jesus, when Jesus said that in, my, in John 5, 39, is he talking about the, when he says search the scriptures, is he talking about the New Testament or the Old Testament? He's only talking about the Old Testament, right? If you're reading the Old Testament and it's dead to you, it's probably because you're reading it and you're not looking for Jesus in it. Because it's every bit, every word of it, is about Jesus. If you're reading the Old Testament and you're not looking for what it's teaching about Jesus or how it's pointing forward to Him, then you're doing it wrong. We have already seen Jesus say in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but what? Here's this word. To fulfill. Right? Notice that Jesus is not just fulfilling the law. It's not just saying he's keeping what the law commands you to do. He certainly did that. But it, he, he's fulfilling the law and the prophets. Everything that that Old Testament book is alluding to, pointing to, typing, shadowing, Jesus is the fulfillment of every bit of that. Everything that you see is about Jesus. Jesus understood, this is uh, uh, France, R.T. France. He says, Jesus understood the Old Testament Christologically. That's to say that every bit of it is about this narrative of the Messiah coming into time, the Christ, the Anointed One, coming into space and time in order to save His people from what Adam did. You start in Adam, and then Adam falls, and then immediately in 3.15, Genesis 3.15, you have that the seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent's head, and everything in the Old Testament going forward is showing us what this guy's going to be like, who he's going to be, and what the people who are needing to be saved are like. The entire theological system of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus' work. In His coming, the whole Old Testament economy finds its perfection and its fulfillment. The patterns that played themselves out between God and the Israelites played themselves out again between the God-man and these contemporary Jews. That's what it's saying. Same things you saw in Old Testament Israel, how they were and how God related to them is how these contemporary, Jesus' contemporaries, are relating to Him and how He's going to relate back to them. The same sort of hard-heartedness and hypocrisy that marked the Jews in the Old Testament marked Jesus' contemporaries in an even more damnable way. That's Jesus' point. And the same mercy and sacrifice that God demonstrated and provided in the Old Testament, Jesus would demonstrate and provide in a more permanent and salvific way, right? That's why we don't have an Old Testament 
um, temple system and sacrifice system anymore. Everything in that, it was types and shadows. It was, the temple didn't, it wasn't a prediction like Nostradamus, but it was all types and shadows that pointed forward that had their fulfillment in Christ. And that's the same thing that these Old Testament Israelites who were blind, who were calloused, who were hypocritical, who's with their lips, they honored him, but their hearts were far from him. Yes, it was true of them, but it's even more true of these that Jesus is dealing with here. So when Jesus says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, he simply means that when Isaiah wrote, Isaiah 29, 13 and 14, then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of traditions learned by rote. That is what was true about that people to whom Israel, Isaiah was writing, but it's even more true of those that Jesus is talking to. In the same way that the law and the prophets finds their fulfillment in the ministry of Christ, the hard-heartedness and the hypocrisy that characterized idolatrous Old, Old Testament Israel finds its fulfillment in the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. And notice the parallels that Jesus sees. Those who Isaiah warned, well, they were Jews. And where were they from? The ones that Isaiah was writing to in Isaiah 29. From Jerusalem. And with, with, with a religion that was characterized by externals that destroyed the true intention of God's law while pretending to honor Him. Remember how God responded to their religion? Turn to Isaiah 1, 11 through 17. <clears throat> Jesus never wanted... External service, not Jesus, that's true. God, the Father, never wanted external service apart from heart, deep devotion, ever. It's not a new innovation in the New Testament. It was always that way. In Isaiah 1, 11 through 17, God says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Says the Lord, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moons and festivals and all your appointed feasts. They're doing all this external religious stuff. And what God says in Isaiah, what? He absolutely hates everything they're doing. All of it. They have become a burden. Even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. They, you know, they probably thought, yeah, my hands are covered with blood. The blood of my offerings. He means the blood of how you're abusing and doing people wrong metaphorically that you're wicked at heart. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widows. Be a people of compassion. That's what God was demanding then. He delighted in compassion, not sacrifice. That's how God responded to their religion in Isaiah's day. And it's how Jesus, the God-man, is responding in his own day. The Jews of Jesus' day thought of themselves as preserving ancient traditions. But Jesus said they were actually preserving the spirit of those who Isaiah criticized long before. Another thing about this fulfillment that I want to point out is Jesus knew who he was and he knew what was coming for him. And 
Jesus knew that just like Isaiah's contemporaries didn't hear him, his own people would not hear him either. Remember in Matthew 13, 14 through 15, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. He, he quotes Isaiah a lot. Jesus sees himself as the Isaiah messianic figure. And he quotes Isaiah a ton of times. He says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they've closed their eyes. And not only will they not hear Jesus, but they're going to completely reject Jesus. You know, Isaiah didn't start writing at chapter 29. That's why we've got more chapters. Who knows what comes later? Jesus knew where all this was headed. These people were just like the contemporaries of Jesus' day. They had hearts that didn't really love God. And he knew it was going to progress to Isaiah 53 and what happens in the end of the book of Isaiah to the Messiah. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Jesus knew that the end for him was going to be being killed. He knew that these people, this inquisition, they're going to... They're going to be successful. They're seeking how they might destroy me all the way back in chapter 12. He knows that now he's trying. he tried to get away and hide in chapter 14, but he couldn't because compassion made him keep healing, which brought more attention to him, and now the Inquisition has came. You'd think he would cower, wouldn't you? You'd think he would start compromising for self-preservation, wouldn't you? But Jesus wouldn't do that. He wouldn't, he wouldn't cower out of it. He wouldn't back down from the moment. And these Pharisees are a fulfillment indeed. Look at Matthew 23, 29 through 36. Matthew 23, 29 through 36. He knows where this is headed, and he proves it in Matthew 23. Since the people's heart is far from God, and they only give lip service to truly loving God... He knows what they've done to the prophets before and he knows what they're going to do to him and to all he sends. Matthew 23, 29-36 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. They're a fulfillment just like those old ones rejected the prophets and even killed the prophets. He's saying, You are exactly like that. And you're going to do the same thing. Jesus knew where it was headed. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them will, you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogue and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say unto you, all these things will come upon this generation. 
That's why in the next chapter in Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again on the third day. I want to, I want to point out something. It says, Jesus began to show His disciples. How did He show them? Anybody? How do you think He showed them? Out of the Scriptures. Because... The Scriptures are all being fulfilled in Him. He read this Old Testament Christologically. He saw in the Old Testament Jews that had rejected God that now He had came as God in the flesh and He was going to be rejected in the same way and everything it said that would happen to the Messiah was going to be culminating in His death on the cross. That's what He saw. Now, not, Jesus not only tells the Pharisees and scribes that their religion is a fulfillment, but He tells them how. He tells them because it's a fake religion. It's like theirs was fake. Remember, they did all the externals, but their heart was far from God. He says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. The boldness and courage of this statement cannot be missed. Jesus has just heard of John being executed by Herod, right? In chapter 14. He knows the Pharisees are out to get him. He knows that these Pharisees and scribes who actually have a judicial function, these scribes from Jerusalem are actually, they're judges, have come down from Jerusalem to find fault with him. He knows that ultimately these people are going to have him executed. So what does he do? Well, he calls them a bunch of hypocrites. Look at that. Jesus was not a weak man. Jesus was not a timid man. He called them a bunch of hypocrites. The word for hypocrites, hypocrites, it's a stage player, an actor, or a mask wearer who wears a role. That the, In the dramatic productions of that time, they would whatever the role was, they would wear a mask that was exaggerated for effect, and they would play the part, and it was absolutely ridiculous the mask would be that they would wear. That's the word that he uses to talk about them. He used that term earlier in Matthew 6, 1 through 18, where Jesus mockingly derides their ridiculous brand of righteousness. Jesus pictured an imaginary theater. He warns his hearers not to be actors in this imaginary theater because it's a dangerous theater. When I preached on it back in chapter 6, we called it the theater of the damned. The scribes and the Pharisees performed in that theater every day. They took great pride in their performances. They're idolatrous performances. And why were they idolatrous? Because their intended audience was not God, but before men. It's a direct violation of the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. It's living and doing externally good things to be seen of others, to impress others. Living for the reward that other people can give you, whether it be with kudos or reputation or praise. Friendship, belonging, money sometimes, whatever it is. It's pretending to be something that you're really not to, protest, to impress others. The scribes and Pharisees believed that this performance of righteousness would get them to heaven. But Jesus warned them that these performances earn no merit, but they actually store up wrath to be revealed on the day of wrath. Remember what he said, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Beware of 
practicing. Matthew 6. One, beware of practicing. The word can also be translated performing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Should we not all check our hearts? Why do we do the good that we do? That before men means to be noticed. It's that word, theaomai. It's related to the term for which we get that English word, theater. It has in mind a spectacle to be gazed upon. We might say, beware of performing a theatrical righteousness before men, or you'll have no reward with your Father in heaven. Jesus pictured three different masks in chapter 6 that one might be tempted to wear in that theater of the damned. Uh, they, they might wear the, uh, the giver. Do not sound a trumpet, chapter, two, uh, chapter 6, verse 2. Do not sound a trumpet to announce your giving like the hypocrites do. You want to act like you're a really loving, giving person, but really you want to sound the trumpet so everybody notices how much you gave. You're a pretender. You're doing it to be seen of men. And you have your reward already. Do not, when you pray, don't go into the street corners like the hypocrites and pray these long prayers because you're doing it. Why? To be seen. How many people pray long, flowery prayers when they're in public but they have no closet prayer life to speak of at all? Or when you fast, don't put on a gloomy face and let everybody know that you're fasting so that you might be seen of men as the hypocrites, the mask wearers do. These Jerusalem scribes and Pharisees had likely heard of Jesus mocking their practice, but when he did it in the Sermon on the Mount, he never called anybody a hypocrite. He said, as the hypocrites do. He changed that here. He calls these high-ranking religious officials hypocrites. Have you ever seen people that are really bold when there's nobody intimidating around, but then when there's somebody who actually matters, who might be a threat to them, they kind of temper it down a little bit. Like They're really bold until there's somebody that they're scared of. Notice this. Jesus, when the people who really have some teeth, really have a real threat to him, he does, that's when he amps it up. He takes it up a notch. Guys, we should be really, we should know our hearts well enough to know that when you're tempted to hide, you need to show, and when you're tempted to show, you need to hide. Amen. Jesus is insinuating that. Not only is their practice of almsgiving, their prayer, and their fast, the way they do it, not only is that hypocritical and mask-wearing and fake, but he, the practice of washing hands fits this bill as well. It's, oh, you want to make sure you wash your hands. Guys, you can do it too. Hey, I've got to pray before I eat. Say, well, shouldn't you pray before you eat? Sure, it's a fine thing. Unless it's just rote, not out of your heart, and you're not really thankful, and you're just doing it because you want to be seen by men. Then it's not a good thing. Sometimes you want to do it to look holy. And then when it's around people that you think it'll be offensive, for some reason you might might forget right then. It's the deceptiveness of our hearts. Who are we doing it for? Is it really for God? We know by... If we change depending on who the audience is, don't we? And that's who they were. But the ultimate source of their hypocrisy was their desire to be teachers. Notice, with their lips, they honor God. They went around talking about God positively all the time. They praised God. They talked. To, they knew the Scriptures. They would quote the Scriptures. Now, always with their tradition of the elders, but they would quote the Scriptures. These people honors me. Remember what honor means from last week? Remember that? 
For God has said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. That word honor, we defined it last week, to give weight to, to be burdened by, to be put in a place of difficulty because of, to be willing to do that, to be put in a place where something actually costs you something. That you're saying, I honor this. This is more important to me than anything. Nothing more important, people, nothing more important to me than my faith. And they never darken the door of the church or read their Bible or do anything for the Lord at all, ever. But nothing's more important to them than their faith. You know why? Because they say so. With their mouth, they honor. They don't really love God. That's why they're the types of people that you have. These people spoke as if they honored God for what they could get out of acting like they honored God. When the social collateral goes away, I wonder how many Christians are going to be in these parts. It's diminishing now. Used to, everybody would say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Those numbers are going down. The cultural Christianity is going away. And we're getting exposing where the true Christians are showing and the false ones are exposing themselves as well, aren't we? The Pharisees and scribes loved being the respectable teachers. They wanted everyone to respect them for how much they knew and how pious they were. That's the problem. Remember the issue with the hypocrites. They perform their righteousness to be seen of men. People that study their Bibles, and man, they want to be able to have a good showing when it's discussion night on Wednesday night. They want to be able to say something really, really smart. They want to say the best thing there. Beware. Showing your righteousness before me and honoring God with your lips. Therefore they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. Look at Matthew 23, 1-7. Matthew 23, 1-7. Jesus knew exactly who these Pharisees were. The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore all they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and they do not do them. They tie heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Notice how he returns to that, that same thing. He returns to the theater of the damned in Matthew 23 as well, using the word the hypocrites and to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments, for they love the places of honor at banquets. They love the chief seats in the synagogues, the respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by men. They love looking holy. They love for people to think that they're holy. So they honored God with their lips, but their heart was far from Him. Notice this. He do, it doesn't, the, the text doesn't say their heart... The, the text says their heart is far from me, not their hearts are. Their hearts are, wouldn't like all their hearts are... But here, it's a collective heart. Notice that. Their heart is... This is a collective sin of the age. That there's a spiritual blindness over the whole nation of Israel at this time. Particularly over their leaders. 
Judgment has arrived on the whole people through their leaders being blinded by this darkness over their hearts and their minds. A judgment on a whole nation of people and a whole system of religion. They say they honor God, but they lack His heart. They care about external law keeping, but they had no compassion, no mercy, and no forgiveness. We've seen that occur again and again. Let's do one of our famous little runs through the text. Go back to Matthew 9, 11 through 13. We see this, that they lack the heart of God in Jesus' encounter with the tax collectors and sinners. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Guys, if you're going to avoid eating with sinners, you're going to have to go out of the world. Because that's who everybody is. But they had their certain notorious sinners they thought were beyond redemption, and that's who they, who they had branded. That Those people are too wicked to be around or even try to have compassion toward the Pharisees. Why is Jesus with that, with that kind of person? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I, speaking of God, desire compassion and not sacrifice. I don't want your externals. I want you to love people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Where's your compassion? I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners who are on their way to hell to bring them hope because I'm the doctor. But not only that, look just a few verses later. Finding fault with Jesus after the healing of a mute, demon-possessed man. Jesus is going around healing everybody, doing all these miracles and when they were going out a mute demon possessed man verse 32 was brought to Jesus and after the demon was cast out the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed and said nothing like this has ever been done in all of Israel and what happens with the Pharisees well they're like oh no Jesus is getting more attention than we are what they care about they wanted the attention they want people to pay attention to them they wanted to be looked at as the Holy One. And people are, Jesus is teaching with a wisdom that I don't have. And He's doing miracles that are authenticating it. And everybody's going after them. I'm not being called rabbi. I'm not getting the greetings in the marketplace that I love. So what do they do? Well, they turn around and they attack the miracle worker. They say, but the Pharisees were saying, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Oh, beware of jealousy, brothers. Particularly those of you that want to preach. You ever want a pastor and then a young buck coming up that can preach and has passion and knows the Word and preaches with authority and you don't want to give him an opportunity because you don't want him to steal your thunder? You don't need to be in the ministry. Take a seat. It's not about you, is it? But Jesus going through all the cities and the villages, what did he do when that happened? He just taught in their synagogues, continued proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness and seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had the heart of God. He loved people. He wanted to serve and do good. He was embodying the law of God. Not these empty traditions. He was the embodiment of the law of God. Turn forward to Matthew 12, 1-7 when they condemn the disciples. The disciples are plucking heads of grain. Jesus is going around doing miracles everywhere. Now he's going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples got hungry and began to pick heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they find fault. They always find fault. Regardless how much good that Jesus and his disciples were doing, Lord, look, your disciples do what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. 
But actually, it wasn't Sabbath breaking. It was just their interpretation of the Sabbath. Jesus defends it in three different ways. You can go back and listen to those sermons. But ultimately, what's he returned to? But if you'd known what this means, in verse 7, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, then you would have not condemned the innocent. A few verses later, the man with the withered hand. Jesus goes right after this episode into the synagogue and they sit down. There's a man with a weathered, a weathered hand and they question Jesus. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath to tempt him? They knew that his compassion would make him want to heal and they're basically threatening him. You better not do it. And he said to them, What man is there who has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath? Will not take hold of it and lift it out? Their law even allowed for that. And this man, he says, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand and it was restored like normal, like the other. But the Pharisees went out and that's where that verse came in from earlier. They, just, they conspired against him, how they might destroy him. He's doing these wonderful things. They want to destroy him. Why? Because they're jealous. It's for envy. They want the attention. They want to be looked at as the Holy One. Once again, the same thing is playing itself again and again. They're with their lips. They honor Him. But where's their heart? Their hearts offer themselves to be noticed. It's all a play. It's, a, it's a, the theater. And they're wearing the masks. And they want to be noticed by men playing whatever part they think will get them attention. And then ultimately here back in our text, even to the point of natural affection, where they will, they will violate natural affection that you don't even have to take care of your own aged mother and father so you can keep on to your money and get a little bit of vengeance because you didn't think they did a good enough job to merit your love and support. You know, you don't honor your father and mother because they're worth it. You honor it because God told you to. Did you know that? That's why. They, they wanted a loophole to be able to get out of it. With their hearts, they acted as if they would be, as if they would give weight to, if they were willing to be burdened by, if they endured if they were willing to endure difficulty or cost in the path of faithfulness to God. They would, they acted like that God was their all in all. But ultimately, the truth was that they feared man, not God. Look at verse nine. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. With their lips they honor me, and in vain they worship me correspond. They go together. Honor means to give weight to, to be burdened by, endure difficulty for, or cost on behalf of. And you give honor only to that which you worship. This word for worship is that you, you fear or you be afraid. That you uh, be honored, terrible, dreaded, awesome. That which you see as most to be honored, most to be feared, as most awesome, as that which is most to be desired, that which you would most want to be blessed by, and whose curses you would most want to avoid, whatever that thing is, is what your true God is, regardless of what your lips say. You can honor one thing and say, oh, this is the most important thing in the world, but if you won't endure cost for it, if you won't be burdened for it, if you won't take up your cross and follow after it, if you won't lay down your life for it, there's something higher than that. If you're not willing to die for it, there's something higher than that that is your functional God. That's the point. That's what you worship, regardless of what you say you do. And their alleged honor, fear, and worship of God, Jesus says, is empty. It's in vain. You worship me, or to no purpose, for nothing, fruitlessly, to no profit. That's what this word means, this in vain. 
Jesus is returning here to the basics again. To the, to actually, to the Decalogue itself, to the Ten Commandments. Remember where this section began? The, some scribes came to Jesus and, and from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus answered and said to them, Why do you, for the sake of your tradition, transgress the commandment of God? They're asking Jesus, Do you not give weight to the tradition of the elders? Are you not willing to be burdened by it? I know it's harder to have to wash your hands. They didn't have running water in faucets like we do. It was kind of a hassle to have to do that. Are you not willing? Just a little burden. Remember the rabbis last week that said it was better to travel four miles, to walk four miles out of the way to get water to wash your hands than it was to eat with unwashing hands? Remember that? Are you not willing to be burdened by the tradition of the elders? Any truly pious person would be willing to be burdened by the tradition of the elders. For your life to be made a little more difficult by it. For it to be costly to you. And Jesus points them back to what they should be worshipping. He's saying, hey, that's what you're worshipping. You're worshipping the tradition of the elders that everybody holds to and that if you don't hold to it, you don't look holy. But what you need to be worshipping is the true commandment of God getting away from what everybody believes and everybody thinks and going back to the Word of God. You'll transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. And guys, we all are in danger of that all the time. We don't even know how compromised we are. We swim in the waters of culture every day. And does a fish know it's wet? We should be studying the Bible to see where our entanglements are and being more and more different from the world. Because there's a cultural Christianity out there today that it's the traditions of men, but it's not what God's Word says. And we've got to go back to what God's Word says. That! would make our worship not in vain. That would make the lips honor Him and make our hearts not be far from Him. Jesus points them back to what they should worship. And that by following the tradition of men over the commandment of God, their worship is vain and the honor that they give is a lie. I said it goes back to the Ten Commandments. Let me just quote the first Three of them for you. Read them to you in Exodus 20, 3 through 7. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves any idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. These Pharisees have been products of multi-generational curses of people who had rejected the commandments of God for the sake of human tradition. That's why they're a fulfillment. And you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave them unpunished or guiltless who take His name in vain. With their lips, they honor Him, but their heart is far from Him. God... Taking the Lord's name in vain, how many of you know that's a sin? So, I don't say GD, and I don't say, oh, you know, I don't use Jesus' name as a cuss word, or I don't even say, oh God, and we try to be very careful. 
Throwing God's name out there and acting like you're more righteous than you really are to get the appearance, the attention and the applause of man is a way more grievous way of using the Lord's name in vain than saying GD is. And I'm not saying you should go out and do that. But I'm saying you're not innocent just because you don't say a few words sometimes when you get upset. You can still be guilty by trying to act more holy or more pious than you are to invoke the name of God when it's advantageous to you to make people look at you a certain way is the ultimate way of using the Lord's name in vain. When your heart is far from God acting like it's not so that people think you're righteous. Ultimately, they didn't... With their lips, they honored God and they, they worshipped Him, but it was all in vain because ultimately they honor and fear and even worship man. What did they teach? Verse 9 at the end. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. They would rather be accepted in their circles and celebrated among men than to be accepted by God. They will ignore what God's Word says in order to be in keeping with the accepted teachings of their day. Where does this sort of compromise begin? Well, in the heart, of course. It begins when your heart is far from God. It begins when you give more weight to something other than Him. It begins when you dread the curses of something else more than His curses. And when you desire the benefits of something else more than His desire, more than His benefits. And isn't that what it said? In his first invocation of this tag of hypocrite in chapter 6, beware of practicing your righteousness where? Before men. To be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward in heaven. When you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets so that you might be honored by men. Truly I say you have your reward in full. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen of men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. When you fast, not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. It begins with performing righteousness to please men, and it ends in redefining righteousness to please men. That's where it goes. You'll start just by performing your righteousness, true good things, but you do it with the wrong aim, the wrong motive. That's where it starts. But when they're your God, you won't stop there. Whatever they think is righteous, you'll try to do that because your ultimate goal is to please them. So you start with doing your righteousness to please them, and then you redefine what righteousness is according to what pleases them. That's the danger. And it'll be the temptation in every culture in which you can live. Every culture will have their own set of what is acceptable and what is righteous. And how dare we... Blaspheme the name of Christ. Love these people more than we do Christ. How dare we compromise what Christ's teachings are so that we'll be accepted in a culture that hates Him. We show who we love. Well, you know, how bad is homosexuality? They need to be able to... I mean, I, I mean it's wrong, but they should be able to get married. Yeah, that's, where, that's where the right is now. No, it's still where the wrong is. It's just that's all that's acceptable. And we are obeying their blasphemy laws. That's what we're doing. Why? 
Because we're scared of them. Because we care more about their acceptance than we do God's. People, how many people put blackout boxes for that Marxist organization, Black Lives Matter, on their Twitter pages and their, and their Facebook pages? Why? Because that's what everybody had to do. That wicked, godless organization that's burning cities down all around the whole country that is for the, the, the dissolution of the family and, and all advocating all this intersectionality garbage and homosexuality and the abolition of the family and doing away with mothers and fathers' rights. But hey, culture, I got a virtue signal and let everybody know I'm on their side so I can be approved by men. You're just like them if that's you. You're them. It's the same thing. It's repackaged. It's no longer saying Corbin and not having to take care of mom and dad. We already did that by saying I don't have to take care of mom and dad because I'm going to rob everybody else and Social Security's going to do it. We already did that. So we've got to move to the next thing. And the next thing begins with performing righteousness to please men and it ends in redefining righteousness to please men. John 12, 42-43 Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in Jesus. They believed in Jesus. Listen to this. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in Him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him. They believed, but wouldn't confess Him. Why? For fear that they would be put out of the synagogues. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. So I believe in Jesus. He's the real Messiah. He's the one that the whole Old Testament was pointing to. He's the Redeemer. He's the one that's going to crush the serpent's head. But these people might put me out of the synagogue. Will we deny the one that can give us everlasting life because some people can put us out of the cool kid circle? It's worse than being put out of the... We're even more pathetic than being put out of the synagogue, guys. For they loved the approval of men, it goes on to say, rather than the approval... Of God. Oh, what a terrible bondage our sin can be. For the temporary applause of men, men will compromise. Or at the very least, they'll refuse to speak that which they know to be true. And you know, you're required not only not to say the bad things, but you're required to actually say the good, which is going to make the world hate you. Marvel not if the world, what is it, hate you? That that's what's going to happen if we follow Jesus because we're going to be pushing against the sins of culture, calling them to the righteousness of God, letting them know that even though you are guilty, there is forgiveness and there's pardon. But you are still guilty. We want to leave out the guilty part and just go to the pardon. We've got to have both. We've got to have law and gospel. Gospel makes no sense without guilty people. And we've got to call out the sins of our day unashamedly. As we recognize them and we come out of them, we have to stand on the side of the Scriptures against the tradition of the elders of our day. Matthew 10, 26-28, Therefore do not fear them, Jesus says. Don't fear them. Don't teach their precepts. Don't fear them. For there's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim it from the housetops. Jump for joy, yes, with joy. Proclaim the, the, the Word of God unashamedly to a world that needs to hear it. Do not fear those who kill the body and are unable to kill the soul, but fear Him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. In vain... They worship me. Word for worship, it has in, included in that, it's that idea of fear. 
that the dread of God is greater to me than the dread of man. The desire for God's benefits is greater to me than the desire for the benefits that man can give me. It's what we do to our functional God. Jonathan Edwards said this, he said, Boldness enables Christians to forsake all rather than Christ and to prefer to offend all rather than to offend Him. I disagree with Edwards here. Boldness doesn't enable Christians to forsake all rather than Christ and to prefer to offend all rather than Him. Truly being a worshiper of God, a worshiper not in vain, leads a man whose heart is near to God and who boldly honors God with his lips without hypocrisy. It leads us to boldness is what I'm saying. It's not be bold and you won't do that. It's if you worship God, you'll be bold. You see what I'm saying? Don't just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and say, I'm going to be bold now. No, no. God must be number one. And if He's not, we've got to say, God, help me. Take out my old stony heart and give me a heart of flesh. Help me see things rightly. Don't let me live for the temporary when the eternal is at stake. If you believe in the eternal, you won't be threatened by the temporary. The righteous are as bold as a lion. Boldness is the product of your worship. And you will be bold for that which you worship, whether it be God or the honor of men. Notice how bold the LGBTQ inquisition is these days. It is, isn't it? Man, they're bold. They'll stand up and they'll fight and they'll scream and they'll yell, why? Because they're bold. They're unashamed because it matters to them more than anything. Where are the Christians that God matters to them and His Word and His law matters to them more than anything? Where are they? I mean, I can't figure out why we're losing so badly. It's because they actually worship something not in vain. It's the wrong thing, but they worship it. And we worship our God in vain. Still caring way too much about what everybody thinks about us to actually say what God's Word says unashamedly and without fear. That's the problem. Sinclair Ferguson said, The fear of the Lord tends to take away all other fears. That's the secret of Christian courage. Dale Partridge in book, Megan bought me. Thanks for the book. Good book. Fearlessness is the anchor of boldness. Beneath the boldness of Christ is a sheer fearlessness of man. When we're grafted into Christ and we know we've got all of His benefits, how can we fear what man can do to us? To where do you turn when you failed though? How many of you here are like, I'm guilty of these things because I am. I do sometimes cower and fail. I do want to avoid the awkward, and I do want don't I just want people to like me sometimes, don't you? I don't want to have all the conversations. I don't want to have the mark on my back. But we've seen that that's not what holiness really looks like. It's not who Jesus was. That's not who he told his disciples to be in chapter 10 in the missionary discourse. And it's not who we're supposed to be either. So what did we do where we failed? Well, God had a purpose for the prophecy of Isaiah being fulfilled and the hypocrisy of the damnable religion of the Pharisees and the scribes. Our last place we're going to turn this morning is Matthew 21, 33-45. We're almost done. Jesus gives this parable. 
there was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, and he dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower, and he rented it to the vine growers, and he went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves into the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed one and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same to them. But afterwards, they sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Guys, what's this talking about before I read anymore? The prophets all came to Old Testament Israel. They had hearts that were far from God. With their mouths they honored Him, but their hearts were actually far from Him. When God came with a true messenger, any of the prophets, they rejected the message and often killed the prophets. And then God, He sent His Son. But He wasn't confused about what would happen like this parable. Parables always break down. He sent His Son knowing they would do the same thing to His Son. And his son stood up and loved God more than anything and loved his fellow man and lived a life of complete service to others and complete obedience to God and was bold as a lion. And they hated him for it. And they killed him. (coughs) Kind of. They killed him, but he gave his life. Because in that ultimate act of complete boldness, he gave his life. They didn't take it from him. He laid it down. Why? Because he was bold enough to pay for our cowardice. He was bold enough to pay for where we've not loved God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Where we've not loved our neighbor like we love ourselves. Where we have come short. Jesus came knowing what these these fulfilling Pharisees and scribes would do to him. And he did it to save you and I. That we, as guilty sinners, can come and say, I've not lived up to what I've heard today or any day that I've ever heard an actual sermon from the Bible preached. Because of what Jesus did. Because of what he did, I can be forgiven and I can be changed. He can conform me to his image and give me complete pardon because of what Jesus did. As we'll see, they don't get off scot-free. Therefore, when the owner of the house comes, what will he do to these vine growers, Jesus asked. And they said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds in the proper season. And Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. They rejected Jesus and now he's the cornerstone of everything. Their religion's gone. Their temple's gone. It was cast down and thrown into the sea. It was burned up in 70 AD. It's gone and over. Just like he said it would be. I say to you, therefore, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they understood he was speaking about them. Guess what? Jesus didn't care. Jesus was fulfilling his mission to save his people and to judge his enemies. Guys, we need to make sure we're on the side of his people, not on the side of his enemies. Are you here today, guilty sinner? Trust savingly in the completed work of Jesus. It is our only hope. It's all we've got. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that it would penetrate hearts, that you draw your people to yourself, that you would purify our hearts, make us more like you. Give us courage to go into a world to proclaim your truth and to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. 
Lord, help us to be, a, 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 to be agents of change in a lost and dying world and watch you triumph through your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.